How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Good evening, dummies. Episode 173, Monday, June 21st, 7.38 p.m. Wonderful to have you here. And the lighting is so strange with my show. Sometimes you wear a white shirt and it looks good. Other times it doesn't. Today it looks better than it usually does. I don't know why I bring that up. Hey, everybody, welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. We're going to be talking about a few things tonight. I just got done going live. I'm going to continue to do that right before the show. Just five minutes or so. Say hi, answer some questions, and see if it gets some draw. Um, right now it's 20, 30 people. Big deal. No, no big deal. But we're going to be doing that each time. Uh, what is Don't Unfriend Me? We'll go into that in a second. But let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about tonight. But first, if you haven't seen the Saturday special that I did, please watch it. There's some funny stuff in there, and I would uh, love for you guys to take a second and give it a quick look. Tonight, are you there, God? It's me, America. Well, how did this all start? What what do we mean? Is America dying? Is America gone? Is America uh, just a glimpse of what it once was? Or were we never really where we were supposed to be as a people? Well, let's talk about what this is going to be. It's going to be about a, a conversation around the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence, how they're synonymous with each other. They're symbiotic. Without one, the other doesn't work. And I got into a little bit of a tiff with uh, a a person on the YAF site, and I just figured I would bring it to you because it was a good lesson for me, one in humility of that I can admit when I'm wrong, but also that it's weird when you're also right at the same time. So stay tuned for that. It should be uh, eye-opening. Tonight on ESPN, the Washington Capitals versus the Communist Breadliners. We're going to talk about capitalism versus communism. I keep hearing all the time that communism is a wonderful form of having a, an economy and a government, but it's just never been proper, properly done. This predominantly comes out of the youth. I said it when I was younger. I heard it somewhere in poli sci, and I said, oh, well, socialism could work if uh, people would just actually follow it and they wouldn't turn into a dictator. Well, that's the problem, and that's why it always does. And in my presumptuous youth, I obviously was dumb as dog shit. By the way, folks, uh, well, let's do this, and then we'll talk about the other thing. Call me Mrs. Hulk, please. As the IOC and the Olympics come around the corner with Tokyo, we know there is going to be some controversy. But people are emboldened with transgenders coming out from the woodwork, no pun intended, and wanting to be involved in women's sports. I notice they don't want to be involved in male sports. It's always female sports to downgrade. I wonder why. But that's really not the point. There are a few people who are rising up and saying that this is absolutely sexism and female sports should be as prominent as male sports. And I'm here to tell you why they aren't tonight. I'm also going to tell you why I think transgender should not be in female sports. And it's probably going to be a fairly controversial opinion, but that's what we do here. I also want to say one more thing. Parental advisory is advised. I realized when I first started this show, I cussed worse than you've probably seen in the most recent episodes, 30 or 40 episodes, I mean, it was bad. My first few episodes, I was cussing like a sailor. And then I had a friend tell me, well, that could ostracize people, people who are religious, people who don't use foul language, they may not watch. And I said, okay, I'm going to start cleaning it up. So I did. And I didn't really grow that fast. Then I started cussing and bleeping it out and realized that that was too much work. 
And I think my sister said it best. She said, Matt, you have to be you. And the only you is you being you. And that is a person who can talk in both mediums. I can articulate in both fashions. I can use colorful metaphors or 10 cent words at pretty much ad, ad nauseum. But I can also drop a good F-bomb once in a while. I try to keep it just to that. I don't use the C words. I don't call people um, mother effers. I don't get too explicit. But I do say shit and fuck once in a while. If that bothers you and you just got a tingle down your spine, listen, I understand. You can jump off the show, and it's okay. It's not. I'm not going to take it personal. I would still ask, we have a bunch of memes and some other posts that you can be involved in and still get caught up on latest news, and I would enjoy it if you would stick around. Or just realize that they're words, and it's not a sin. There's nothing in the Bible about cursing, even if mom and dad say that it's bad. All right, folks, let's get into the last part. It's always a joke, and I apologize. This one's going to get me in trouble, but it was so funny, I had to laugh. My son's in karate, and I thought it was just great. What is Israel's most popular sport? You guessed it, jiu-jitsu. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Oh, man, everyone understands how much of a supporter I am of Israel, but uh, the joke was pretty funny. Welcome, everybody. My name is Matthew Spear. I am your host of Don't Unfriend Me. What is Don't Unfriend Me? Well, it started, oh, I think maybe nine months now. It right started, started right around um, the first year part of the pandemic, but about three months in, I just made a video and people on Facebook said, wow, you really need to go and do more. So I did. And here we are today. It has grown into something fairly large. We're at almost 21,000 followers. And I I honestly love doing what I do. So this is great. We cover politics, sports, current events, really anything that tickles my pickle. And I will bring it to you. I give you an opinion. Sometimes it's left. Sometimes it's right. Predominantly, I am a conservative. I want to be able to disclose that to you. I've been called a right winger because I voted for Trump, but I've also voted for President Obama. Obama. So am I a lefty? I also voted for Bill Clinton. I tend to take a middle-of-the-road approach and try to see both sides of an argument so I can be well-educated and versed, and I will try to bring that to you to the best of my ability. I can't promise you won't be offended. All I ask is that you look at the 90% good and just ignore the 10% bad and maybe move on to the next episode. My social sites, if you want to follow me, and please do, find me on Facebook, you can find me on Instagram, and also everything else uh, over on Anchor for all my podcasts. If that doesn't do it for you, you can visit me on my website at don'tunfriendme.com. It'll have all my videos, it'll have my blog and everything else, including my podcast, at a one-stop shop for your viewing pleasure. Like I said, occasionally I do drop a few colorful metaphors. My French is fluid, folks. So if you're offended by curse words, hang in there. It's going to be okay. Lastly, like, share, follow, and subscribe if you wouldn't mind because that keeps the lights on. Are you there, God? It's me, America. I told you there was a gentleman, and I don't remember his name. We'll call him Dr. Norton. No, he's not an antivirus. Or is that Horton? No, it's Norton. Maybe they just dropped the doctor. It used to be Dr. Norton. Now it's Norton. 
it doesn't matter. The point is, is we were talking about inalienable rights, the Second Amendment. And he came on and he said, hey, the First and Second Amendment are not essentially bestowed upon thee. They are actually not given or granted in any way, shape, or form. And I found it a very obscure way of using the word confer. Because, yes, that's exactly what confer means, is to grant or to bestow. But conferring is more of a conversation. So was he saying that rights aren't given? Or was he saying that there is no question that rights are given? And it created a little bit of a conundrum for me. So I asked him. And, of course, he was a little flippant, and so was I, and whatever, but generally respectful. And I retort to him that rights are inalienable. And although the Declaration of, or the Constitution of the United States doesn't necessarily talk about God at all until the amendments, the, the, the Declaration of Independence did and was very heavily laced in theological, theological, religion. (laughs) So I, my point was, is that these rights were God given inalienable, or at least from an entity, not of this earth, that they were never to be in question. And I think that is where the conversation went sideways. I think he may have thought I was really into religion, which I'm not. And he said, well, God didn't write the Constitution. And I said, yeah, man, I I know that. That's not what I said. But it doesn't matter. The whole point was, he's like, everything that you've said herein and outside of this conversation is not the truth. Well, I disagree. And we're going to talk about that tonight. He was right. He explained himself and said, the first and the second, whether we have a government or not, are still your rights. And that is absolutely true. It's also playing semantics. You're splitting hairs. The government, whether you like it or not, created the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Bill of Rights. That's just the way it is. But they are not to infringe upon. It's not for them. It's for us. And that we do agree. But the whole point is the chicken-the-egg mentality. Without the government, we never would have had it. And without the Constitution, we'll never have those rights. So the point being is, yes, in a perfect world, we would have those rights no matter what. Whether Moses comes down from Mount Sinai or Jefferson and the framers go ahead and write it, they are ours and nobody else's. And they can't be taken away from us with a government or without. And that point, he is correct. My point is the government is supposed to protect our rights and ensure they are not infringed upon by the government. That's why we have checks and balances. That's why we have representatives. And that's what America's all about. So when we get into this, Thomas Jefferson, undeniably, he was the architect of the American brand of liberty, believed freedom was bigger than America. It was not that other other nations didn't have uh, didn't experiment with democracy or a republic. In fact, China and Russia both have a constitution, and it says some very lovely things that you can protest about anything, that there are no restrictions to your speech. You can literally say fire in a theater in China, but you can also get a bullet to the head. And just because they have a constitution doesn't mean the government follows it. That is the difference between us and them. But rather, it was Jefferson's view of freedom that went beyond politics or just another form of government. He was doubtlessly influenced by John Locke, but Jefferson refined the philosophic view of natural rights and possessed the excuse me, possess the acumen to navigate the political landscape, influence his fellows, and design a nation around those beliefs. Beliefs. Up front, it must be acknowledged, Jefferson was flawed and did not um, really mete out the same freedoms he extolled, holding slaves until he died. We know that now. 
Still, Jefferson, who fanned the flames of independence that sparked the revolution, spoke of personal liberties in ways that are timeless and perhaps more apropos now than at any time since the American Revolution and Civil War. Think about these words and what they mean in 2020. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Jefferson held that our basic rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not guaranteed happiness, are not gifts given to us by the government, and they're not. They're not American rights, but instead basic human rights, natural rights that belong to all of us. They're not mutually exclusive. And herein lies where Dr. Norton is correct. However, these rights, he argued, are unalienable. That is, no one on earth gave them to us, and no one can take them away. These rights, he believed, are undeniable and should be universal, but unfortunately are not. Who knows what was in Jefferson's mind as he wrote those powerful words. He was most definitely an enigma and a study in contrast. He was doubtlessly conflicted. Nevertheless, the words are the words and truth is truth. Those most basic human rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness do not belong to us because we are Americans or because we are male or because we are wealthy or because we are landowners or because we are white. We all, rich, poor, male, female, American, non-American, black or white, are entitled to freedom and basic human rights simply because we are people. Government does not give us our freedom or our natural rights. In fact, government doesn't really give us anything at all. And this is where my point comes in. What government has, including any power it possesses or money it holds, it has because we gave it. So all of us, regardless of gender, race, creed, color, or station in life, possess certain unalienable rights that are not beholden to government for those rights. We should, however, expect the government which we empower to protect our rights, all of our rights, or more importantly, the rights of all of us. These are the three most important documents in American history, and this is where I believe with everything in my soul that one cannot stand with the other. It is the tripod or the stool, so to speak. They absolutely need all three pillars to be successful. The Bill of Rights, the Declaration, and the Constitution are symbiotic documents. But why are they so important, and what are their similarities and differences, and how did each document in turn influence the next in America's ongoing quest for liberty and equality? There are some clear similarities among the three documents. All have preambles. All were drafted by people of similar backgrounds, generally educated white men of property. The Declaration and Constitution were drafted by a Congress and a convention that met in Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia, known as Independence Hall, in 1776 and 1787, respectively. The Bill of Rights was proposed by the Congress that met in Federal Hall in New York City in 1789. Thomas Jefferson was the principal drafter of the Declaration and James Madison of the Bill of Rights. Madison, along with the Governor Morris and James Wilson, was also one of the principal architects of the Constitution. Most importantly, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are based on the idea that all people have certain fundamental rights that governments are created to protect. Those rights include common law rights, which come from British sources like the Magna Carta or natural rights, which the founders believed came from God. 
The founders believe the natural rights are inherent in all people by virtue of their being human and that certain of these rights are unalienable, meaning they cannot be surrendered to government under any circumstances. At the same time, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are different. And they're different kinds of documents with different purposes. The Declaration was designed to justify breaking away from a government. The Constitution and Bill of Rights were designed to establish a government. The Declaration stand on its own. It has never been amended, while the Constitution has been amended 27 times. The first 10 amendments are called the Bill of Rights. And this is where the granting of these rights or to confer these rights simply because you are an American are specific to us because are the Bill of Rights absolutely 100% inalienable or unalienable rights as well? And the answer is yes, because all of these are threaded together. Let's go into that now and talk about that. The Declaration and the Bill of Rights set limitations on government. The Constitution was designed both to create an energetic government and also to constrain it. The Declaration and Bill of Rights reflect a fear of an overly centralized government imposing its will on the people of the states. The Constitution was designed to empower the central government to preserve the blessings of liberty for we, the people of the United States. In this sense, the Declaration and Bill of Rights on the, on the one hand and the Constitution on the other are mirror images of each other. And this is where the symbiotic relationship confer. Despite these similarities and differences, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are in many ways fused together in the minds of Americans because they represent what is best about America. They are symbols of the liberty that allow us to achieve success and of the equality that ensures that we are all equal in the eyes of the law. We already have that under God. The Declaration of Independence made certain promises about which liberties were fundamental and inherent, but those liberties didn't become legally enforceable until they were enumerated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And that is why the government and the law grant these powers. It does not mean that we need the government to give us approval for them, but they were not enumerated and they were not finalized in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights until that time. The fundamental freedoms of the American people were alluded to in the Declaration of Independence, implicit in the Constitution, and enumerated in the Bill of Rights, hence conferring it for the people. It's not necessarily that's where they originated from, and it's almost like the framers accepted, and it's almost like the politicians and the government said, yes, we agree, now we affirm. We didn't write the law, we didn't necessarily write the rights, but we are going to go ahead and affirm them and implement them and agree with what they stand for. It's very different, but it took the Civil War, which President Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address called a new birth of freedom to vindicate the Declaration's famous promise that all men are created equal, and it took the 14th Amendment to the Constitution ratified in 1868 after the Civil War to vindicate James Madison's initial hope that not only the federal government but also the states would be constitutionally required to respect fundamental liberties guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, a process that continues today. Could you imagine if the 14th Amendment wasn't written, that if we just stood by the Constitution and said that this is it, well, government had a big part to play in that. They had a big part to play in civil rights, Jim Crow laws, and slavery would still be around today if it wasn't for the government. Can you imagine that? The problem with libertarians and the people who are dead set, and I'm one of them who believe that the Constitution is a perfect document, it is only a perfect document because it can be changed. 
Now, there are certain amendments that are, excuse me, there are certain rights that never should be changed. And the first 10 most assuredly are the ones that should never be touched. Freedom of speech, he's absolutely right. Free, right to bear arms, absolutely right. Quartering of troops, illegal search and seizure, we can go all up to the rest. But the point I'm trying to make is that there have been provisions and amendments that have been made that have enhanced the Constitution, and herein lies the beauty of the Constitution that is a living, breathing document and not static. And that is a big difference from saying that the Constitution should never be changed, because it has, and that's the beauty of it. Tonight on ESPN, the Washington Capitals versus the Communist Breadliners. Capitalism versus Socialism. We can sum up each economic system in one line. Capitalism is based on human greed. Socialism is based on human need, right? No, wrong. So wrong, it's exactly backwards. And I'll prove it to you. Been on Amazon lately? And you should because it's Amazon Day today. Each of the thousands of products Amazon offers represents the work of people who believe they have something you want or need. If they're right, they prosper. If they're wrong, They don't. And that's how a free market works. It encourages people to improve their lives by satisfying the need of others. No one starts a business making a thing or providing a service for themselves. They start a business to make things or provide services for others. I speak from personal experience. I've been doing retail for 23 years. I have had my own small business. It started out as a comic book store, and I have ran business successfully in Fortune 15 companies and also smaller mom-and-pop locations. If our customers didn't like something, we changed it, and fast. Because if we didn't, our competitors would, pun intended, eat us for lunch. The consumer, that's you, has ultimate power. In effect, you vote with every dollar you spend. In a socialist economy, the government has the ultimate power. It decides what you get from a limited supply. It decides what should exist. Instead of millions of people making millions of decisions about what they want, a few people, government elites, decide what people should have and how much they should pay for it. Not surprisingly, they always get it wrong. Have you ever noticed that the late-stage socialist failures always run out of essential items like toilet paper or bread or gasoline? Of course, this isn't a problem for those who have the right connections with the right people. Those chosen few get whatever they want, but everyone else is shit out of luck. See, that wasn't that bad. Just one word there. Venezuela, once the richest country in South America, is the most recent example of socialism driven a prosperous country into an economic ditch. Maybe you think it's an unfair example. I'm really not sure why, though. But okay, let's say it is unfair. We'll ignore the fact that leftist activists celebrated it as a great socialist success right up until it wasn't. What about Western European countries? Don't they have socialist economies? People seem pretty happy there, don't they? Why can't we have what they have? Free health care, free college, stronger unions, good question, and the answer may surprise you. There are no socialist countries in Western Europe. Most are just as capitalist as the United States. The only difference, and it's a big one, is that they offer more government benefits than the U.S. does. And health care is not socialism. The military is not socialism. The fire department is not socialism. Social programs are much different than socialism. But once again, the trigger words, the three-second stab is always better than the 15-minute deep dive into a subject. 
We can argue about the costs of these benefits and the point at which they reduce individual initiative, thus doing more harm than good. Scandinavians have been debating those questions for years, but only a free market capitalist economy can produce the wealth necessary to sustain all of the supposedly free stuff. Europeans enjoy free stuff. And to get the free stuff, after all, you have to create enough wealth to generate enough tax revenue to pay for everything the government gives away. Without capitalism, you're Venezuela. And the problem with that is no country has ever taxed itself into prosperity. Tell me one. What happens after that? A revolution or an uprising or a coup. You can go ahead and go all the way back to the ancient Greeks. You can go back to Rome. You can go back to medieval times. When you tax your citizens into poverty, there's only a few people who get rich, and it's certainly not anyone living outside the castle walls. In a 2015 speech at Harvard, Denmark's prime minister took great pains to make this point. Quote, I know that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model with socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is a far from socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. So when you point to Denmark as a paragon of socialism, you're really singing the praises of capitalism. The more capitalism, the less socialism you need. Look at America since 2017. A policy of lower taxes and less government regulation that's more capitalism has led to one of the most robust economic expansions we've seen since COVID. Something, though, and some thought it would be impossible just a few years earlier. Don't you remember when they said the GNP and the overall growth of our economy would never go above 2.0? Because that's what Obama did at his best day. But unemployment, notably among minority groups, typically most at risk for poverty, was at a generational low before COVID. Economic expansion gets people off welfare and into work. That's less socialism. None of this requires a degree in economics. Common sense is all you need. That's why it's so frustrating to see young people praising socialism and criticizing capitalism while they have a Starbucks and an iPhone in their hand. It's bad enough that they're working against their own interest, better job prospects, better wages, personal freedom, but they're also working against the interest of the less fortunate. Capitalism leads to economic democracy. Socialism leads to the economic dictatorship of the elite, always and everywhere. So beware what you ask for. You just might get it. Call me Mrs. Hulk, please. BMX freestyler and douchebag writer Chelsea Wolf, who qualified as an alternate to represent the U.S. at this year's Summer Olympics in Tokyo, said last year that his goal was to win an Olympic medal so I can burn the U.S. flag on the podium. My goal is to win the Olympics so I can burn a U.S. flag on the podium. This is what they focus on during a pandemic, hurting trans children, Wolf wrote on Facebook on March 25th, 2020, along with a link to a pink news story about the Trump administration's stance on transgender girls and female athletics. Wolf told Fox that the post, which has since been deleted, doesn't mean she doesn't care about her home country, right? Anyone who thinks that I don't care about the United States is sorely mistaken. You have a funny way of showing it. Wolf told Fox News, one of the reasons why I work so hard to represent the United States in international competition is to show the world that this country has morals and values, that it's not all of the bad things that we're known for. 
I take a stand against fascism because I care about this country and I'm not going to let it fall into the hands of fascists after so many people have fought and sacrificed to prevent fascism from taking a hold abroad. We also fought communism too. We also fought socialism, slavery, world domination, being thrown in the pits with lions, diseases, technological disadvantages, economic collapse, housing market, dollar devaluation, world wars. It's not just fascism that we were trying to stop. And fascism absolutely should be stopped. And good for you. You get an applause. Who the fuck is for fascism? Tell, raise your hand. Who wants a fascist country? Nobody. But it's amazing that the right wing are now considered fascists. And honestly, the delineation between right wingers and fascism is there. And on the political spectrum, we're one step away from fascism. Everyone knows that. And lefties are one step away from socialism and progressivism and communism. So it's not like if anyone takes a step to the left or too far to the right that they're not going to be in a world of shit. Can we stop playing holier-than-vow liberals? We most assuredly are closer to fascism than we're not. And you are closer to progressivism, socialism, and con- communism than you're not. And honestly, the left is moving there a lot faster and have a larger platform than we do, considering you own the media, you own all celebrities, Hollywood, and now you're going after the schools. So really, which one is it? Fascism or socialism, progressivism that's taking over the world? As a citizen who wants to be proud of my country, quote, I'm sure as hell not going to let it take hold here. And burning the flag does what? What does that prove? How did that work out for Colin Kaepernick? How did it work out for the NFL? I promise you this. The demonstrations that they're talking about, kneeling and disrespecting the national anthem, the IOC is not going to stand for it. They've already called it out. Good luck getting a controlled substance like gasoline uh, during your BMX ride. Let me know how that works out for you. You're going to go to the local store and just bring it in past security? I'm pretty confident you're going to be stopped. But if you somehow manage to pull it off, I promise you your career as an American, let alone an Olympic athlete, will be over. Journalist Ian Miles Shong first reported on Wolf's post. Wolf also reportedly joked about exploding former President Donald Trump's head. Quote, I would never say that someone should explode the head of the president. That would be illegal, Wolf wrote in Facebook. Comments according to a screenshot posted by Shang. But I will say with dynamite, because that's just a sentence fragment and doesn't actually mean anything. It's not necessarily related to the sentence that came before it. Earlier this month, Wolf posted about what it meant to qualify as an alternate for the Olympics as a transgender athlete. Quote, I searched for so long trying to find out if there had ever been a professional trans BMX rider to show me and show me who I am and that it would be okay. And unfortunately, I found no one, Wolf wrote on Instagram on June 12th. Quote, eventually I started to meet some amazing women who helped me accept that I am a woman, just like any other, and that I deserve a place to exist in the world just like everyone else. Half of that statement is true. You do deserve a place to exist just like everyone else, and you have those inalienable rights given to you by either a UFO being or God or whatever you want to say, a foreign entity. But what you do not deserve to do is to actually call yourself a woman because you're not. Sorry. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I hate to rip the Band-Aid off, but nobody else is going to say it. You're not a woman, period. The only other person who really says it is Ben Shapiro. Why, will, why, can't, why, why can't we just be honest? 
You can be trans. You can be different. And I'm not saying you can't play in, in women's sports, but there should be rules to who can and can't based upon a lot of things. We're going to go over it right now. But you're not a woman. I'm sorry. You may identify as a woman, but that doesn't make you a woman. International Olympic Committee policy specific specifies conditions under which those who transition from male to female are eligible to compete in the female category. Among them is that the athlete has declared that her gender identity is female and that the declaration can't be changed just for sporting purposes for a minimum of four years. Well, that's funny because it's every four years that the Olympic happens. So can a person be a female and then go ahead and decide to transition and do it again four years later? What? Yes, I understand there's junior Olympics, there's world Olympics, there's nationals, there's qualifiers and all that other stuff. And it stops them from participating in that. But what's the point? The athlete must also demonstrate that her total testosterone level is below a specific measurement for at least 12 months prior to her first competition. I wonder what that level would be. I happen to know a little bit about this. The IOC policy also states the overriding sporting objective is that remains it remains the guarantee of fair competition. Well, it isn't fair competition. In a majority of U.S. states, bills aiming to restrict who can compete in women's sports at public institutions have either been signed into law or working their way through state legislatures. Caught up in the political point scoring are real people, both trans athletes who want to participate in competitive sports and those competing against them. Both have a case. I spent a lot of time thinking about the role of law in protecting the rights of individuals, especially when the rights of some people appear to conflict with the rights of others. How do you accommodate transgender athletes in competitive sports, which I think we need to figure out. We need to figure out whether they should be accommodated at all. And isn't that the biggest conflict in the whole thing? Some people believe that women should only play women's sports. Some people believe it should be open. Intramural sports, sports are okay. On one side are transgender athletes who want to compete in the gender division with which they identify. On the other are political activists and athletes, especially biological female athletes, who believe that allowing trans athletes to compete in women's divisions is inherently unfair, and it is. But so is not allowing people to have a love for a sport simply because they identify with another sex. And whether that's psychosis or not, it doesn't matter. They should have the right to the pursuit of happiness. But let's understand that that pursuit could end up in failure. And that's the way it goes. You don't get everything you want in life. But why is this issue so fraught? What's so special about women's sports anyway? Why do women divisions even exist? And is it possible to protect women's sports while still finding a way to allow transgender athletes to compete in a meaningful way? Let's be clear. Few Americans would care about how to best accommodate transgender athletes if they were not winning events. But that's exactly what has happened. In 2017 and 18, Terry Miller, a trans woman, won the Connecticut Women's High School Track Championship in the 55, 100, 200, and 300 meter events. Her closest and only real competitor those two years was Andrea Yearwood, who is also a trans woman. In 17 and 18, Mac Beggs, a trans man, dominated the Texas 6A 110-pound girls wrestling division, capturing two state championships while compiling a record of 89 wins and no losses. Unlike in Connecticut, where athletes may compete as they identify, athletes in Texas must compete in the gender listed on their birth certificate. While Miller, Yearwood, Beggs, and others have triumphed in their respective sports, the number of transgender high school athletes is actually very low. 
nor is there any evidence that athletes have transitioned for the purpose of gaining a competitive advantage. Although we can say that, you don't know. Yet some legislators have latched onto these examples, using them as a basis for bills that ban all transgender teens from participating in gender divisions that differ from their birth sex. But these bills don't solve the competitive imbalances that can occur while athletes like Beggs, with athletes like Beggs, Worse, they might prevent transgender teens from competing altogether. And what if we have somebody who actually could compete at a level who wasn't predominantly better than the females? Is that okay then? Well, of course, because the competition. As long as that person's not going to win, we don't care. But if there is a threat of them winning, then all of a sudden it becomes an issue, and everyone knows that's true. Since studies have shown that kids who participate meaningfully in athletics have better mental and physical health than their peers who don't, and teens who identify as transgender are at significantly greater mental health risk than their peers, it's a worthy goal to try to accommodate their desire to compete. And I said it's a worthy goal. The phrase participate meaningfully is important. Someone who, for example, is nominally on a team that doesn't take the sport seriously, does not participate meaningfully in competitive sports, and there are those people, might be acceptable. Similarly, someone who takes the sport seriously but easily dominates all competition also does not participate meaningfully in the competition. Youth sports organizations exist because we don't believe kids should compete against adults. Any kids are further separated by age because age for children is a reasonable good proxy for skill and ability. Organizations like the Special Olympics and Paralympics exist to provide opportunities for people with physical and mental disabilities to participate meaningfully and compete against people with similar skill sets. So can a completely 100% healthy, normal, respectively, trans athlete be a part of the Special Olympics? Well, what if they identify as that? Is it not okay? And don't tell me it's not the opposite end of the extreme. We, the freaking unicorn android potato kin I talked about the other night most assuredly is real. There's people who believe they are elven princess fairies, for God's sakes. They are not the norm, but they are exceptions. And since we're playing to the exceptions anyway, we might as well talk about all exceptions. Otherwise, this is an effort in futility. Male and female athletes are separated for these reasons. The rise of women's sports in 1972, the U.S. Congress extended Title Nine of the, excuse me, Title Eleven of the Educational Amendments to the 1964 Civil Rights Act to prohibit discrimination in all federally funded education programs, including included their associated athletic programs. The impact on athletics for women and girls, and as a result, U.S. culture has been nothing short of dramatic. In 1970, fewer than 5% of U.S. girls participated in high school sports. Now, 43% of high school girls participate in competitive sports. Separating athletes by biological sex is necessary because the gap between the best male and the female athletes at all levels is dramatic. Serena Williams is not only one of the best female tennis players in history, she's one of the best female athletes ever, period. In 1998, both Serena and her sister, Venus, famously claimed that no male ranked outside of the ATP Top 200 could beat them. Karsten Brash the 203rd-ranked player, ATP player at the time, challenged each to a set. Brosh beat Serena, Serena 6-1 and Venus 6-2. Quote, I didn't know it would be that difficult, Serena said after the match. I played shots that would have been winners on the women's circuit, and he got to them very easily. 
At the 2019 New Balance National Outdoors, the National Track Championship for U.S. high school students, Joseph Fenbula of Minnesota won the men's 100 meter with a time of 10.35 seconds. That same year, Olympic gold medal winner Shelly Ann Frazier-Price ran the faster 100 meter of any female in the world 10.71 seconds. Her time would have tied for 19th at the U.S. Boys High School event. Here's one more example. It's a bit different. In 2012, Keeling Palero, a four foot eight, 80 pound seventh grade boy, petitioned the New York State Public School of High School Athletic Association. To, uh, sorry, Athletic Association to play field hockey on his school's all female team. It approved his petition. As a seventh grader, Palero made the high school JV team. As an eighth grader, he made the varsity team. But players and coaches from other schools argue he had significant advantages because he was a boy. During the summer before his ninth grade year, the league agreed to it ruled Polero could no longer participate because his advanced field hockey skills had adversely affected the opportunities of females. I point to these examples because put together, they show that no fitness regimen, no amount of practice, and no reallocation of financial resources could allow the best female athletes at any level to compete against the best male athletes at the same level. This advantage isn't simply a difference in degree. It's not just that male athletes are bigger, faster, and stronger, but it's a difference in kind. Pound for pound, male bodies are more athletic. It's just the way it is. When we evaluate trans athletes on a case-by-case basis, and maybe this is the answer, so how, how can we allow trans athletes to compete without giving them an unfair advantage over the competitors? One proposed solution, as if taken from the pages of novelist Kurt Vonnegut, Harrison Bergeron, is testosterone-based handicapping for events. My God. Competitors would have their testosterone levels measured and the algorithms would determine their advantage. Then competitors would be fitted with weight clothes, compete on a different track, or otherwise receive an appropriate handicap before competing. Are you shitting me? But having a higher level of testosterone doesn't make you automatically a better athlete. I don't know if that's true. Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. I will be honest with you. Outside of the military, I was built like a brick shithouse. And then I suffered from low testosterone. It had a lot to do with my back. and had a lot to do with the medication that I took. Forever screwed up my T levels. I lifted every day for three years. I was religious in the gym. 365 days, I was doing some form of of exercise, and I didn't gain a pound of muscle. I was rail thin. My body fat was probably close to 8%, and I looked like death. So I went to the doctor, and he said, dude, you have the testosterone of an 85-year-old man. And once I started taking supplements for that, it immediately changed my growth level, and I got back to a healthy weight. It makes a difference, and I can hit a baseball a lot further than I could the last 20 years. I'm telling you right now, it makes a difference. Testosterone is a lot more than sheer strength. It's adrenaline, it's passion, it's drive, and the appropriate amount of anger to be effective. But beyond this, while handicapping may be fine for a golf outing with your friends, it isn't appropriate for serious athletic contests. How about we just start snapping people's ankles who are really, really good? How about we just go ahead and break LeBron James's finger so he can play at the same level as everyone else and still leave the, the floor six minutes early when he's losing because he's the biggest fucking baby in the world? The point of athletic comp- competition is to determine who is actually the best, not who is the best relative to handicaps. Another proposed solution entails replacing gender divisions entirely with ability level divisions. 
if this could hinder women's participation in sports. In a world with no female-only divisions, Serena Williams would still win some tennis tournaments, but they likely would be tournaments you've heard of. What's the most viable solution to the debate? Since there is no typical transgender athlete, broad rules for transgender athletes don't seem appropriate. Instead, language similar to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's disability accommodation policy could be used for transgender athletes. The decision as to appropriate accommodation must be based on the particular facts of each case. Men's divisions could be eliminated and replaced with open divisions. Any athlete could be allowed to compete in that division. Then transgender athletes could be evaluated on a case-by-case basis based on their athletic ability. A tournament organizer could determine which division is most fair for them to compete in, women's or open. For trans athletes, at issue is their athletic ability, not their womanhood. If a tournament organizer determines that a trans woman athlete is too good to compete against other women because of her biological advantage, requiring her to compete in an open division does not undermine her humanity. Instead, this acknowledges and takes seriously that she identifies as a woman, but that respect for the principles of fair competition requires that she not be allowed to compete in the women's division. While whatever decision is made, it is unlikely to make all competitors happy. This approach seems to be the most fair and feasible given the relatively small number of transgender athletes and the unique circumstances of each athlete. The underlying cause is this, is when you start setting boundaries for qualifiers, like a weight class, people will do horrendous things. Ask anybody who wrestles. Supermodels do the same thing. They will blow lunch before events. They will starve themselves or they will stuff an an exorbitant amount of food into their bodies to make a higher weight. It's not healthy. And any weightlifter will tell you on a long enough scale or a wrestler that doing this constantly has adverse effects on your body. People will most assuredly cheat. People will take testosterone injections or they'll take estrogen or they will lower their testosterone by taking illicit substances that are not necessarily legal on the circuit. People will cheat. And that is another thing that will be created by this. And here's the real question. Women's sports to begin with, it has nothing to do with being transgender. It's just that women's sports suck. I'm going to say it. Has anyone watched a WNBA game? No, neither have I. Because I tried it one time. I think I watched the LA Sparks versus the Chicago Who Gives a Fucks. And I literally, in the first 10 minutes of the game, saw two baskets made. It was the most boring thing I've ever seen. And you might say to me, well, Matt, that's basketball. Of course, men are taller, they're stronger, they're faster. Okay, men's gymnastics. Have you ever seen the floor exercise from a man? Pommel horse, rings, the parallel bars? There's no comparison. The vertical leaps, the speed, the intensity, the amount of twists they can do. How about ice skating? Men dominate that field. What about football? You want to put a female as a linebacker? You want her to die? It comes down to this. If you want women's sports to be successful, then you have to stop not watching them. Women, why do men watch sports? Because we relate to the men. It's our dream to hit with the ninth inning with two outs two strikes with nobody on base. You're down by one and you want to tie it up in the World Series. As a little boy, we all dream of that. We wanted to be Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan. Women, who did you want to be? Which female athlete did you want to be? You have a very limited option. Was it Mia Hamm? Was it Venus? Serena? Billie Jean King? 
didn't have a lot. And the reason why is people say it's sexism. They don't broadcast the sport on TV. No, they don't broadcast the sport on TV because nobody fucking watches, including women. Women, if you want women's sports to be successful, you have to make it happen. But on Sunday, you're not watching the WNBA. If you're watching sports at all, you're watching what your husband's watching. And that is the sad truth. I am all for women's soccer. I am all for the NHL and women playing NHL. There's nothing wrong with that. I will watch the Olympics. That is, I don't care what sex you are. I want to watch a great product and I want to see America win because we have a team. And that's the difference. That is why women or men and women watch the Olympics equally because America is the team. Women, you need to find your team and you need to support them. And when you do that, it will become addictive and others will watch. And maybe a few sexist, atypical men will sit down and watch it too and enjoy it. Just not the WNBA because that shit will never be good. Folks, you can love me. You can hate me. You can agree. You can disagree. But either way, just don't unfriend me. Thanks for stopping by tonight. I do appreciate it. My name is Matthew Spear. Again, please give me a like, share, oop, like, share, and a follow and a subscribe right over there. It keeps the lights on and it lets me know you're watching. Thank you so much. Please leave a comment below. Let me know what you think. Tell me I'm full of shit. Tell me you agree. Tell me I, I didn't cuss enough or tell me I cussed just right. I will be the three little bears. Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1. Veteran suicide is a real thing. 22 commit suicide a day. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, stress, anxiety, depression are all real. Veterans need your help. Please reach out. Talk to a veteran today. If you can't, give me a call. I will reach out and help you do and make that call. If that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendly.com. Click on the VCL link. Be connected to a Skype operator, and they will help you. Veteran Crisis Hotline cares about veterans, and they are the one-stop source for all issues that derive from service overseas. Our men and women are that important. They need your help. Folks, once again, thank you for stopping by tonight. I hope you enjoyed 173. I will be back tomorrow for 174, and you can count, and that is awesome. Talk to you tomorrow, folks, and have a great night. Bye-bye.